This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's never too late to start thinking about what you can do to keep your bones, joints, and muscles strong. And as always, it's not one big, huge thing you have to change, but multiple smaller changes that lead to big results. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. Today, we'll learn how to have better bones. We'll discuss treating varicose veins and the circulatory system. We'll talk about practical solutions for garden critters. And lastly, we'll share the summer's best marinades, But first, a little bit of business. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy, enjoy the detox, enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. Joel Thuna is a master herbalist and general manager of Purely Natural. He strives to improve the quality of natural products on the market and passes along his knowledge of herbal remedies through lectures and articles. Joel is a regular contributor to Tonic Magazine and this show. Welcome back, sir. How are you? Happy June. Happy June. I am doing wonderful and hopefully everyone who can hear my voices as well. We are going to talk about an interesting topic, which is germane for, I'm sure, all of our listeners, and that is bones how to build them, and how to maintain them. Yep. So let's get started. How do we build good bones, and how do we rebuild them, and how do we maintain them, and what do we do? Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to understand that most people don't really get what our bones do for us. They actually play many, many roles in our body, but their two big ones are really important. They provide structure for our body to allow us to stand and move, etc., and they also protect our organs. That's a big thing most people forget. Mm-hmm. Now, chief for bone health is something called bone mass. That is essentially how thick and strong and sturdy your bones are. So we're going to talk using that phrase repeatedly. Mm-hmm. Now, the amount of bone in you can keep growing until your late 20s. At that point, your bones have pretty much reached their maximum strength and density. You achieve approximately 90% of your maximum bone mass by 18 if you're a woman and by 20 if you're a man. Now, men naturally have bigger bone density than women. Mm -hmm. And this difference actually widens as we age. When women reach their late 30s and men their early 40s, bone density starts to decline. And this continues throughout your life. It starts then but keeps going. But in the first few years after menopause, most women go through rapid, big-time bone loss. Hmm. Now, we have to remember that throughout your entire life, your bones are constantly being rebuilt. You have two types of specialized cells that do this. One type that actively breaks down old bone, and another type that build up new bone. Mm-hmm. This process is called remodeling. It actually makes sense. You're remodeling like you remodel a house, etc. 
when you're young, the building outpaces the breaking down significantly. And it makes sense. You're building bone. Right. And you're growing from a child into an adult. Yeah. Correct. As we age, that trend slowly reverses until it gets to the point where breaking down significantly outpaces building up. And this is when your bone density and strength decline. Now, that may sound a little depressing, but remember, it's never too late to start thinking about what you can do to keep your bones, joints, and muscles strong. And as always, it's not one big, huge thing you have to change, but multiple smaller changes that lead to big results. So I know that you can continue to build your muscle mass, like increase it as you get older, right? Like, like you don't, everybody thinks you're going to lose muscle mass, but it doesn't need to be the case. Can we maintain or grow our bone mass or are we just sort of slowing down the process? In most people, you can actually maintain and build slightly, but you have to actively try to do it. If not, your best chances are just slowing down. Right. Which may be fine. It may be fine because, you know, we're, we're inclined to do less physical activity as we get older. And, you know, you know you're probably not doing a ton of heavy lifting, uh, you know, but for your overall mobility and, you know, how it all interacts with every other aspect of your life, it really is important to make sure that your bone structure is healthy. Definitely. It, it, for lack of a better phrase, it is the structure to build your health upon. Okay. So how do we do that? Where do we start? Well, the first thing you want to do is you want to look at what you put in you. Mm -hmm. So essentially what you eat and what you drink. Now, they both, of course, play a critical role in your bone health. Your bones require many nutrients to help them develop and maintain healthy. These include the obvious ones, which are calcium, phosphorus, but then they also include things like zinc, manganese, copper, the vitamins D, C, K, and A, mm-hmm. as well as protein. And that's a big one we'll come back to later. Yeah, we'll talk about all the uh, supplementation later, but let's focus back on food and drink. Yeah. Here's where the science gets interesting. Researchers have found that strict vegans have significantly higher risk of broken bones, particularly hip fractures. Hmm. They attribute this to the reduced intake of some of those nutrients, those being calcium, protein, vitamin D, and B12, that are found in the vegetarian and vegan diets. However, this can be mitigated by proper diet and proper supplementation. And what I mean by proper diet, that is, if you're going to go vegan or vegetarian, which are both very healthy diets, Mm -hmm. the key is doing it right. Mm -hmm. For example, you can be vegan and consume plenty of vegan processed junk food, which would... It's still junk food. It would still have an impact on your health. It just has nothing to do with animals. However, if you focus on whole foods, plants, and high-quality supplements, you can negate all of that and have all the health benefits of a vegan diet at the same time as having healthy bones. Logic of it makes sense, right? When I see vegetarians or vegans who, you know, out of necessity, you're cutting out certain foods from your diet. Mm -hmm. But if you have, for example, nut allergies, or if you don't like beans, or, you know, like if you're not finding the sources for the proper vitamins, then you run into problems. You can get anemia and, and as you said, lower bone density. That's why, you know, like anything, if you're changing, if you're not an omnivore, you should really have somebody with some expertise guide you through what kind of foods you should be eating. Even if it's as definitely. simple as going vegetarian, not even vegan, right? Oh, definitely. As soon as you cut out one thing and have to adjust, you want to make sure you're not missing out on other Correct. nutrients inside that one thing. Exactly. Okay. 
So along those lines, you want to make sure you have a diet filled with a variety of vitamin, mineral, antioxidant-rich fresh fruits and vegetables. And that's for all of us, not just vegans and vegetarians. Of course. Especially leafy green vegetables. Mm Mm-hmm. On top of that, you want to eat protein from various sources. And when I say that, I'm going to mention some here. Seitan, tofu, tempeh, lentils, edamame, chickpeas, beans, nutritional yeast. And those are all vegan. Then if you're an omnivore, you can add on, of course, beef, chicken, fish, etc., dairy. Mm -hmm. But the big thing is don't stick to one or two that most people stick to as their favorites. Mix it up. Have a variety. It does make a difference. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it's not only what you eat that impacts bone health, but also what you drink. Okay. Studies have shown that carbonated drinks and even flavored waters cause us to lose calcium. And the reason they do is those tend to be high in phosphorus, and phosphorus actually competes with calcium hmm. when it's taken in abundance. So what you want to do is you want to keep your drinking simple. Ideally, drink plain water, or if you need something flavored, have a chlorophyll-infused water, which has a little bit of flavor with it. Mm -hmm. What about lifestyle? Lifestyle always plays a role in every facet of health. Mm -hmm. We know that. Now, there are certain habits that in general are bad for your health. The big ones we know are smoking and drinking. Now, it's been drilled in us for generations that smoking is particularly bad for your lungs and drinking is particularly bad for your liver. But what I learned, researching this actually, is that they're both particularly bad also for your bones. Hmm. Many, many studies have shown a link between tobacco use and decreased bone health. Heavy smoking has long been associated with a greater risk of osteoporosis and a higher incidence of bone fractures along with lower bone density fewer teeth, and a dramatic decrease in bone renewal. Hmm. Okay. So so if if it wasn't reason enough to stop smoking or drinking, here's another one. Okay. Yep. Well, they found it's gone so far that they did studies among postmenopausal women that were twins and found that smokers lose bone 50% faster than their non-smoking sisters. Wow. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, and now with drinking, they found that heavy alcohol use decreases bone density and weakens bone's physical properties. These effects are particularly striking in young people, but chronic use in adulthood also harms bone health. Now, here's the scary part here, that the damage that happens does not get reversed even when the use is discontinued. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's a big one. You definitely want to slow down and make sure that the drinking is in control. Good advice. How does stress impact our bone health? This one was also very interesting. I did not know this before I started. There's a particular stress hormone called cortisol. Mm -hmm. And what it does is when you're really stressed out, it rises and it triggers multiple things inside your body to try and help your body handle stress. But As cortisol rises, your fracture risk increases. Hmm. And it's almost linear. It's it's actually very, very close to linear. Stress is inevitable. We all have stress. I'm one of those people, and I know you are as well, I thrive under stress. Mm -hmm. I really do. But at the same time, it can get to a point where it's too much. And that's where you have to dial it back, because that means you're no longer coping, and the cortisol is out of control. What you want to do is try and keep it in check with the usuals, exercise, yoga, meditation, and once the whole COVID thing is over, 
socializing. Yep. All those things help you keep stress in control and your cortisol levels down. Let's focus on exercise. How does that help with your bones? I know how it helps with muscles. Is it interconnected? It is very much interconnected. And it just makes sense. As your muscles are going, they're stretching, etc., they need something to anchor them to, and that has to be strong, otherwise it, the whole system breaks down. Right. So both cardiovascular exercise, what most people call cardio, mm-hmm. and strength training benefit your bones. And they do it in different ways, so you want to make sure you do both of them in moderation. Mm-hmm. The other The big problem here is I don't want anyone going overboard. If you have bone health, cardiovascular, or muscle concerns, make sure you work with your doctor to set up a customized routine for you that works for you, builds up your bone health, but at the same time doesn't add any risk. Right. Because you don't want to injure yourself or you don't want to put too much stress on your joints because then you can't do anything and that's no good. That's the worst case scenario. All right, let's uh, let's move ahead to supplements. Where do you want to start? Well, let's start with the obvious, which are the calcium and potassium. Mm-hmm. Calcium is the main mineral in our bones, but it's not the only mineral for bone health. Potassium is also important. Potassium neutralizes acid load, which reduces calcium loss from your bones. So what you're doing is you're taking the calcium, getting it in there, and then you're taking the potassium to preserve the calcium. Got it. They work hand in hand. Next one are two vitamins, those being vitamin D and K2. You knew K2 was coming. I knew K2 was coming, Joel. (laughs) Vitamin D increases the amount of calcium absorbed into your body from your food and supplements. Now, that's great, but the problem is your body still needs to know where to put it, and that's where vitamin K2, particularly in the NK7 form, comes in. It moves calcium from your bloodstream, where you don't want it, into your bones where you do want it. And the good thing about that is if you take the two vitamins together, they actually have a synergistic effect that is greater than either of them individually. So look for a product out there, ideally a liquid, that has both vitamin D and K2 in it in one shot, nice, easy, and take it every day. Okay. What comes after K2? I knew K2 was there. What's next, though? Next one is magnesium, Mm -hmm. and magnesium is a bit of a double-edged sword when it comes to your bones. It helps to activate vitamin D, which we know improves calcium absorption. Mm -hmm. However, in your gut, calcium and magnesium intakes inversely influence each other's absorption, meaning a high calcium intake decreases magnesium absorption, and a low magnesium intake may increase calcium absorption. So the key here is balance. You want to ensure you have enough adequate magnesium because it has other health benefits to your muscles, to your heart. It's a good mineral, Mm -hmm. but don't go overboard. Taking way too much can actually harm your calcium intake and harm your bones. Is there a recommended dosage then, or is this more like you have to speak with your doctor about it? Speaking to your doctor would never be a bad thing. Never. But knowing that, also know that Health Canada recommends an upper daily dose of 500 milligrams for adults. So if you take 500 milligrams, you're going to get a decent amount in there, but it's not going to be too much where you're actually starting to do some harm. Cool. What's next? Next is the hero, the immune hero, vitamin C. Mm -hmm. And what vitamin C does specifically for your bones is that it stimulates the cells that, the specialized cells that are involved in bone remineralization. So by increasing their activity, they produce more bone tissue, improving your bone strength. 
Additionally, vitamin C increases your body's synthesis of collagen. Now, collagen is a type of connective protein that makes up, believe it or not, almost a third of your bones, Hmm. and it gives them their flexibility. And if you think about that, you really want that because all of us, and I do mean all of us, occasionally, hopefully more occasionally, less occasionally, (laughs) go and fall. And if you fall and your bones are hard but brittle, they end up breaking or chipping. So you want them to have some flexibility. And it's the combination of the minerals and collagen that work to have them strong, but at the same time flexible. What kind of collagen would you recommend taking them? Personally, I would take a mixture of collagens. Okay. And the reason I say that is that because there's many, many different collagen proteins Mm -hmm. that are actually found. Like, for example, if you get fish-based collagen, it's not actually one protein there. There's actually half a dozen different collagens in there, Mm -hmm. and bovine is different, etc. There's multiple different there. And just like when you're trying to get antioxidants, the more sources you get and the wider the variety, your body will take and use what it needs. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Not a problem. It is always my pleasure. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss varicose veins and the circulatory system on The Tonic. (sighs) Does the fear of losing control keep you awake at night? Enjoy better sleep on something you can control. The supreme adjustable bed by Ultramatic. Customize your back, leg, neck, and lumbar positions with push-button control for relief of back pain, arthritis, and sleep apnea. The Supreme. Take back control of your life. Try Ultramatic's Supreme Adjustable Bed for 100 nights, risk-free. Learn more at ultramatic.ca. Elevate your sleep. Looking for a potent natural formula for varicose veins? NutriPure Circulex's unique blend rapidly alleviates heavy legs, cramping, varicose veins, and chronic venous insufficiency. Circulex's powerful combination of grapeseed extract, horse chestnut, butcher's broom, and blueberry is a must. Talk to NutriPure's experts on their social media platforms to learn how to manage your health issues all naturally. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Alexandra Leon is the second generation at NutriPure and has participated in the family business throughout her life. She's earned two university degrees in science at McGill before returning to take on the quality assurance department at NutriPure. She's now the public face of the company and travels across Canada to participate in consumer shows. Her goal is to develop a close connection and better understanding of the people's needs in order to offer the best formulated products possible. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Very good. Very good. So today we are going to talk all about the circulatory system. And candidly, it's something, you know, I know lots of things. I'm kind of a know-it-all. You may know that. You may know that about me, but (laughs) I don't know the circulatory system very well. So why don't you sort of walk us through the main points? How about that? Okay. So the circulatory system has two main roles. The first role is to give oxygen nutrients to the cells. And the second role is to eliminate, well, take the, the waste from the cells and return them to the heart to be eliminated. Sounds good? Sure. So the blood system is divided in two systems, the arterial system and the venous system. So the arterial is from the heart to the cells and the venous is from the cells to the heart. Now, that causes a separation in the way, like the structure 
of Dartiau versus the venous system. So physically they're different because the arterial system is bringing the blood down while the venous system is fighting gravity. So it's trying to return the blood against gravity to the heart. Okay. So the venous system is a little bit more complex because it has to fight the gravity. It's doing more work. It's doing more heavy lifting. Exactly, exactly. So it has to have a little bit different in the way that it's constructed. So it has a lot of elastin proteins, mm-hmm. and it has also a valve system. Right. Okay. So you have to have a, like a strong vessel strength and then really proper valves in order for your venous system to work properly. So if that's true, if you need uh, vessel strength and, and proper valves, I would imagine there's lots of possibilities for things to go wrong. Yeah? Yes, exactly. So either one or both together can start uh, deteriorating. So if you have, like, say, a weak venous wall, that means the... Okay, so the wall of the venous system is made of proteins that are called elastin. Mm-hmm. So kind of like elastic. It, elastin is a type of protein that, like an elastic expands and returns, right? Mm -hmm. So the venous wall, its function makes it that when the blood passes, it expands to let the blood pass, and then it returns, so it tightens back in order to prevent the blood to go back down, okay? So if the elastin protein is not present, then the vein can become floppy or drooping and and cause pooling of blood. Right. Now, if you look at the valve, the same thing happens in the same principle. So if the valves are inefficient, then you're not getting the proper closure of the valve. So the, way, the best way to like compare this to would be if you take like a plastic cup where you put a straw in and there's that, that little hole with the, the little flaps. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. So those valves, when you put your straw in, it goes in, right? And when you try to pull it out, it's preventing you to take your straw back out. So it's kind of the same principle in your your deep veins. You have this valve system that prevents the blood from going down. And so when gravity pulls it back down, it's kind of like a door that closes and the blood doesn't go back down. Okay. Okay. So if those valves are inefficient, so they're not closing properly, or them too, if there's not a lot of enough elastin, they start to like droop down, and then you can have what is called a leaking. So the blood leaks back down, and then it's not efficient anymore. Right, and I would imagine when it leaks down, it's sort of leaking down to your lower extremities, like below the knee, I would guess, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, so it can cause a lot of issues. One of the main ones would be like varicose veins. Is that what it is? Is varicose veins simply the valves and the elastin sort of not working properly so the blood pools? Is that varicose veins? Okay, yeah. So varicose veins is the visual symptom that you will get. You can have venous issues without having varicose veins. Okay. But varicose vein is one of the major issues because it causes a lot of problems. So varicose vein is the like you said, the bulging, bluish bulging that usually people get in the back of the, the calf. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at the big ones, but you can also get the smaller varicose veins, which are the spider veins, Yes, which are more superficial. So those are kind of the ones you'll see a lot in, in women. It's more prevalent in, in women in late 50s, 60s, where they'll get kind of like the tiny little blue ones on mm-hmm. the top of the skin. Mm-hmm. So that's also a venous issue. It's also considered to be a varicose vein, and it, it depends on the depth of the issue, basically. So are all varicose veins on the surface? Like, you know you have it if you see it? Is it that type of thing? Well, so they're both varicose vein. You can have one or the other. You can have both. 
the deeper ones are more complex or more problematic, mm-hmm. while the superficial ones are a sign of issues, but they're not necessarily as problematic. So it's not just an aesthetic issue necessarily, right? It could signify something more serious, I would think. Yes, exactly. It's not just an aesthetic issue. So the human body holds five liters more, around five liters of blood within it. Okay. 90% of the blood is in the deep veins. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you have pooling and issues in the deep veins, so if you have deep varicose veins, a lot of that blood is not circulating around your body. So what happens is kind of like having a fleet of 100 people delivering packages for you, and now you're only using 50 of them to deliver the nutrients and the oxygen that you need. So you're not efficient anymore, which means that your heart has to pump a lot harder for them to provide all the nutrients and all the oxygen that is necessary for your cells to survive. Okay. So like other than the surface varicose veins sort of being visible, are there any, like, how else would you know if you had deep varicose veins? I guess, you know, your heart rate is up, but, like, is there blood, po- like, uh, do your legs get thicker? Is it that? So, exactly. So, you'll have uh, leg pains, you can have cramps, heavy legs, numbness, tingling, uh, swelling in the feet, cold. Usually, a lot of people have cold feet or cold extremities, so it can be the hands as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, higher prevalence of uh, hemorrhoids. Mm-hmm. And you can also have like night restlessness, which is basically the kind of dull aching that you get at night that's just constant and keeps you up. Okay. So what causes this? Why do people have this manifestation of varicose veins and circulatory problems? So there is a hereditary issue. So some okay. people have just prevalence, for example, they'll have uh, malfunctioning valves within their families or they'll have just regular weaker veins, mm-hmm. but mostly usually caused by external factors. Medication is one of an important one. So some medication affects the strength of the wall. And the other one is obviously the, the unhealthy triad, the smoking and activity and poor diet. So basically in order for your, your veins to be healthy, they need to have a certain amount of nutrients, right? So mm-hmm. for example, if you know that your family has a lot of varicose veins, and then you're not providing all the nutrients that it needs, you're increasing, you're making that problem worse, right? So if you have a problem absorbing nutrients or you're just genetically predisposed to use those nutrients faster, burn them faster, or for whatever reason, then you're not helping yourself. You really have to to be careful, and those are things you can change, while some other things, obviously, you can't impact. Right, so I guess if the question is, is it preventable, I guess the answer is... You know, if it's hereditary, no, because you were born with it. But mm-hmm. I presume there are things that we can do to help things yes. along, right? Yes. So exactly. So I don't want to say it's fully preventable, but you can definitely reduce the speed at which it will happen and the extent at which it will happen. So by eating properly or, or supplementing, it, it could definitely help you prevent these issues. For sure, if you are already starting to have issues, it's going to be even more important for you to supplement properly, but you can definitely help out. So one of the things that you want to do, so there's two impacts that you want to do. You want to increase the tonus of your vessel wall, mm-hmm. and you want to reduce the inflammatory parts. So you want to, by reducing the inflammation, you're going to reduce your symptoms, okay? Mm-hmm. So to increase the tonus of the vessel wall, so you're trying to increase those elastin proteins that we were discussing before. Right. One of the great ingredients that I recommend all the time is the the grape seed extract. So it has a component that's called the proanthocyanidins that helps with the elasticity of the blood vessels, Mm -hmm. and it helps 
to prevent the leakage in the veins. So it really helps with everything that has to do with like the swelling within the legs. Another great component that helps with the, the tonus of the vessel wall is going to be the horse chestnut. The horse chestnut has a component that's called aesin, A-E-S-C-I-N. So it helps to inhibit the enzyme that causes the damage to the capillary wall. So it helps to prevent any type of breakdown that is happening to the, the vessel. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, for the tonus of the wall, you're looking at grapeseed extract and the horse chestnut. Now, if you want to work more on the reducing the inflammatory issues, yes. um, butcher's broom is known worldwide. It's been used for, for decades, and it's really recognized to be specifically amazing for vessels, uh, the venous vessels. Okay, so it helps to reduce the inflammatory properties. So anything that has to do with burning, itching sensation, it eliminates all the leg pain. So it's really a great great ingredient to look for mm-hmm. butcher's broom and then the other one is also the grapeseed extract which is great for inflammatory issues so it has the flavonoids uh, which is uh, also amazing for for uh, circulatory issues and things like that fantastic well thank you so much for coming on the show and explaining that no problem will you come back again soon yes of course we'll see each other uh, probably during the summer fantastic we have to take a short break but when we return we'll discuss practical solutions for ridding your garden of critters on the tonic Is joint pain keeping you from enjoying your favorite activities? New Roots Herbal can help. Whether it's reducing acute pain and chronic inflammation or rebuilding worn-down cartilage, discover joint pain relief, InfliHeal Plus, and chondroitin glucosamine from New Roots Herbal. Only the highest quality natural ingredients tested for purity and potency in an ISO-accredited lab. Available exclusively at your local health food store. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Melissa Cameron is an organic master gardener and founder of The Good Seed. She's passionate about the connection between human health and nature and believes that regenerative gardens can help us create food security and broaden ecological diversity. Melissa has been featured on Farmer's Footprint in Toronto Life, has been a guest speaker at Allen Gardens, and has been a well-received garden expert online and in person. For more information, visit thegoodseedto.com. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Hi, Jamie. Thanks. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. So I've had my garden for a number of years, but what I've noticed, and I don't know what's going on in the city, but the last couple of years we've had rabbits in our neighborhood, which is like, and I've lived in the same neighborhood for over 20 years and I've never seen them. And then last year they were everywhere and they're cute as hell, (laughs) but they amongst other critters are potentially ruining my garden. So I think we need to deal with that today. Yeah, definitely. One of the most common questions I get from home gardeners is, you know, how do I critter proof my garden? And then someone will tell me an anecdote like you just did about a furry friend that 
enjoys your harvest. Exactly. And they're not all furry. So like, which are the critters that you hear about most of all in Toronto? So in Toronto, I commonly hear about squirrels. Yeah. Um, we have a great tree canopy in this city. We do. And that's amazing. But with that tree canopy comes a lot of squirrels. So especially if you live in one of Toronto's most mature neighborhoods, you will have squirrels. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there is the infamous trash panda or raccoon, yep. and those are also pretty common. But more and more bunnies, like you're saying, and also rats. Yeah. <laughs> yep. No, it's. I, I understand it's a huge problem now along uh, the Eglinton line they're building because the rats were like city rats at Young and Eglinton, but as they've been moving east and west and digging the hole under Eglinton, they've been moving out into the more suburban parts of Eglinton, and there are neighborhoods that have all kinds of rats now. That's right. And so as we change our ecological spaces in the city, as we remodel older homes, infrastructure projects, we are displacing populations of critters, and they can find their way right into your yard and your garden. So is it cool? Can we live with them, or or do we need to get rid of them? What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I don't think we have a choice. I believe we're outnumbered. Um, So it's best to figure out how to happily live with them. And I do believe that there are some simple ways that you can deter pests from your garden and some ways that you can create physical barriers to sort of exclude them from your space. Okay, so what are some of those ideas? So I always say every gardener should have a roll of chicken wire. Yep. I think chicken wire can be used in many different ways, but it is a super effective way to create a barrier that's low cost. So chicken wire and a pair of wire cutters, and you can create, for instance, for your bunnies, if they're targeting some of your perennials, you want to bury your chicken wire about eight inches into the soil and make sure it's at least two feet tall Mm -hmm. and create a really nice enclosure. So that's something that's Mm non-invasive and also not harmful to the bunnies. Mm -hmm. What about coyote pee? Do you ever buy any of that? So coyote urine is a pretty common uh, deterrent for pests. And I like to use it as a last resort only because we're not really sure how ethically sourced the Uh. urine is. However, it is usually mixed in a lime base and it's a powder that you apply around your garden. And the theory is that because it is a larger predator, something like a raccoon, for instance, might smell that and move on. So I think the most common way that I would use it is if I have a raccoon that's in a garden and it's treating it as its bathroom. Yeah. Raccoon feces are super dangerous and poisonous. Yep. So for anyone listening, if you do have them in your garden, especially in your edible garden, please be very careful. Wear disposable gloves, dispose of the coyote feces and the soil around that sort of area, and do try to make sure that the that raccoon is not coming back because yeah. once they do use your space, they can come back. So that is one of the uses for coyote urine for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend? That's last resort. Is there anything else other than chicken wire? So yeah, there is. There's something called a motion sprinkler that can be pretty effective in your garden. And so it's triggered by motion. And in the middle of the night when the raccoons are coming by, if you've got that hooked up, they're going to get a blast of water. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's enough just to make them go to the neighbors. Cool. What about something like cayenne pepper? Does that work? I'm not a fan of cayenne pepper. I don't love anything that harms animals directly, and we don't really know who's going to ingest it, whether it's going to be a neighborhood cat. Mm. Uh, you know, so I'm not a big fan of cinnamon, cayenne pepper. There's sort of all of these anecdotal home remedies. I think 
Physical barriers are number one. Build a garden enclosure if you need to, uh, especially for your edible gardens. Second is trying something like that motion sprinkler that gives you that signal to your invaders <laughs> to stay out, right? Does reasoning work? I mean, like I once had a discussion with a raccoon. <laughs> one of, the, the raccoon had babies and one of them fell into like a, remember the short blue boxes we used to have in the city? Yeah. So like one night I could hear like a huge racket and I went out and this raccoon mother was in distress and I let the little one go and she kind of looked me in the eye and said, okay, cool, we're good and I'm going to keep out of your garden. It's anecdotal, but she kept out of my garden. Her and her whole family, like it was like a props and she left me alone. So I'm just telling you that actually happened. So, so, you know, that there is some insight into that, right? Because what you can do is turn that blue bin upside down, for instance. So making yeah. your garden a place that's less hospitable for garden sure. critters yeah. is a great way. So if you have rats, for instance, mm. you know, rats like shelter, rats like food, rats like water. Yep. So you need to start eliminating those types of areas in your garden. If you've got a compost, you want yeah, to lock that say. down, yeah, right? Yeah. So a lot of city gardeners will opt for barrel-style composting just because they can lock it. It's off of the ground, and they know that rats aren't going to get into it. If you do have neighbors that have debris or garbage in their yard, that can also be an issue because the rats might be using your neighborhood, your backyard as like a highway, right? Yeah. So if you are building a raised bed, I know you have raised beds, I right? I do. Yep. One of the things you can do is in the bottom of those raised beds, use what's called hardware cloth or hardware mesh mm-hmm. and lay that down. And so then any kind of vole or rat is not going to be able to tunnel up into your raised bed, but all of the beneficial soil organisms will be able to permeate through that membrane. I was just going to say, does it drain properly? I did have mesh under everything because I actually redid the entire backyard before I put the raised gardens in. So there was a gardener grade cloth across the whole thing. But I often wonder whether or not the water drains properly with it. So I wouldn't use any kind of cloth. The hardware mesh is yeah. actually like a smaller grid than a chicken wire. Okay. Uh, and then we like that because, again, worms and all of those beneficial insects can come up through the soil. Cool. Okay. Other than the fact the poop, right, which nobody wants, you, know, you have to remove the raccoon poop from the garden. Are mm-hmm. there any other health risks from having these critters in your backyard? I mean, certainly you don't want to tango with a raccoon. Yeah. I appreciate that you had a nice chat with one, yeah. but I definitely don't advise clients to interact directly with wildlife. They can carry disease, and if they feel threatened, they could harm you. So that's one thing. The second is, you know, we want to make sure if we're growing fruit and veg in our backyards that we thoroughly wash everything. So that way, if someone has gotten in there and, you know, sort of shared any kind of bacteria from any kind of bodily fluids, Mm. they're all washed up properly. I think there is a romanticized notion that, you know, we eat straight from the garden. But if you do know that your space has critters, just take it inside and give it a thorough scrub. Yeah, I mean, I would do that anyways. I mean, the mustard greens, for example, they have a little dirt on them and I'm not into eating dirt. Um, so <laughs> so I'm going to wash them anyways. It seems like straightforward advice, but I suppose maybe not. And yeah, I would agree with you. Wash off your fruit and veg. Always a good idea. We've talked about the voles and we've talked about the raccoons. Any special advice other than the chicken wire for, for the bunnies or should that cover it? I think that should cover it. I mean, 
The other thing we haven't talked about is if you do have a pet at home, sometimes that can deter squirrels and bunnies, especially from your yard. So if you have a dog, especially, and they roam free in your backyard, uh, you might find that you have less pest pressure. Yeah, actually, my dog is out there quite a bit. And it seemed I was going to ask if that made a difference. It's the same theory, I guess, as the coyote urine. And that is Mm -hmm. if the dog's peeing there, you know, she's not a big dog, but she's probably bigger than a raccoon. So there you go. Right. And she probably will chase a squirrel. Okay. So we have some listeners who are rural and also I, you know, I've, I've heard of this in the city as well. What about deer? Deer can be destructive, full stop. So any of the gardeners that are in sort of more rural areas or maybe even back onto a ravine yep. in the city yep. uh, could face deer. If you are trying to grow fruit and veg, you do need to invest in a very solid garden enclosure. Okay. So tea posts, that are at least eight feet tall. Or, you know, there are some great pre-made garden bed kits that you can buy online that are specific for deer fencing and deer resistance. They're essentially rats on stilts. <laughs> but uh, so here's one. I have a next door neighbor. You have to help me with this. Next door neighbor okay. puts out like stale bagels and bread. Oh, no. And then the squirrels take it and like run up my tree. So I have bagel trees and I'm not really growing bagel trees. And it's really annoying. What are your thoughts on neighbors who feed the chipmunks and squirrels? They're not my favorite neighbors, to yeah. be sure. You know, I don't think that that is part of a squirrel's natural diet. And so I know it's hard to gently educate people sometimes, but I also understand the need to not waste food. And in their mind, I think that's what that is, right? It's worth having a jovial conversation. If you can turn it into a joke, the bagel tree joke is pretty good. Yeah. Uh, you may be able to convince them to head over to the park and dispose of their bagels. What I've been doing is whipping the bagels against their windows. I suppose that's not the best approach, but hopefully they will get the message. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show today. What do you want to talk about next month? Thanks, Jamie. I would love to talk about flowers. Sounds great. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss marinating on the tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Jack Nathan Health offers Canadians convenient care with 74 multidisciplinary clinics located within Walmart stores. The largest ever Jack Nathan Health Medical Centre is now open in Vaughan, Ontario at 8300 Highway 27. The new 8,300-square-foot clinic offers integrated services for the whole family, including family medicine, physiotherapy, and chiropractic, chronic pain management, massage, and a registered dietitian. There's also an on-site Dynacare blood laboratory, plus same-day referrals, walk-in appointments, and a new annual health assessment option. Jack Nathan Health is a one-stop shop for proactive health management. For more information, visit jacknathanhealth.com. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. 
Carolyn Tanner Cohen is the owner and founder of Delicious Dish Cooking School in Toronto. She's been teaching cooking classes for 17 years. She has a science background which edifies her interest in health and fueling the body with foods that will optimize health. Carolyn teaches people how to meal plan, eat healthy, cook with natural whole foods, and organize their kitchen. She teaches new cooks, seasoned cooks, university students who are living on their own for the first time, nannies, housekeepers, and everyone in between. For more information about Carolyn, you can always visit Delicious Dish. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Great, thank you. How are you? Doing well. We're going to talk about a topic that I think everybody can agree on, that, you know, marinades are good and they help you cook. And I think everybody kind of cooks with marinades, whether they do it in a scientific way or not. But we're going to address some things to think about if you're using marinades, right? Yes, absolutely. So... I guess the question, before we get into like what kind of marinades, and it's the actual mechanism of using a marinade. So how long would you marinate for? And not trying to be dirty here, but is longer better? <laughs> well, to marinate or not to marinate? Yeah. That is the question. It is the question. So yes, you are correct. People say longer is better, but it's not really. Okay, so you know that Thank guy God is, for that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so you know the guy who says, like, yeah, my steaks have been marinating for three days? Yeah. It's really not necessary. Agreed. He's just, you know, pushing muscle around. Yeah. It's really not necessary. Okay, so let's first talk about, like, you know, what happens in a marinade. Okay. okay yep. But in order to do that, I want to just touch on what a marinade really is. So. Usually, a marinade consists of some form of oil, some form of acid, and then flavor or aromatics. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we could get into all that, and we definitely should. But the purpose of the marinade is to infuse that oil, acid, and aromatics into the protein that you're marinating. Right. Okay, so whether it be meat or chicken or fish. So let's just say, forget, let's shelf fish for a second. Let's do chicken or meat. Mm -hmm. Marinades normally infuse deep flavors into your proteins, but sometimes they could do more harm than good. So most of the time, when you put a marinade on your, your protein, it'll marinate only the first or infuse into the, only the first millimeters of your meat or chicken. Yep. That really doesn't change much if it's sitting in the fridge for two days marinating. Well, you could, you, you could score it, right? I mean, you could... You, you could, could score it, for sure. But you might just be damaging the top part of your meat only to infuse a little bit lower. Well, you know, there's meat and then there's meat, right? There's certain cuts of meat that are quite expensive that are already pretty tender. And then there are other meats that kind of depends on how you're going to cook it, right? So some marinades, particularly the acid component, are important if you're trying to break down the fibers because it's a tough cut of meat, for example. True. But it doesn't matter if you do it for one day or three hours is the point. It's not going further You know, I agree with you. And I never really marinate for more than a few hours. It's actually more important to bring your meat to room temperature before you're cooking it than anything else. Right. So this is what I was just going to say. The best way to marinate is while you're bringing the, because really it goes into, the marinade goes into the meat the first few millimeters within the first hour. So the best way to marinate is to bring that meat to room temperature while you're marinating it. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so what I always do is I always bring chicken to room temperature for about an hour, maybe a little bit less, but about an hour, Mm -hmm. okay? And steak you really could bring to room temperature for a couple hours. Yes. So I'll just marinate it on the counter for that entire time. Do you remove the marinade before you cook it, or do you leave the marinade on? So in other words, are you asking me if I pat it dry before I cook it? Correct. 
Yes and no. It really depends. If it's no, in general, no, I will not. If it's steak, I might, but in general, no. Unless I'm putting a dry rub on it after, but that's a whole... Well, dry dry rubs are next month. We'll get to that. Yes, let's do that for sure. Okay. So, no. Do you pat the marinade dry if you're barbecuing? Not marinades, brines. I wash off the brine. Oh, yeah. Brines are a whole different ballgame. We should do an episode on brines, too. I think it's a little long. But if I'm cooking the chicken or the steak in a cast iron pan Mm -hmm. and I'm putting oil in the pan. Yeah, you want to get rid of the liquid. Yes. Yes, exactly. But not on the barbecue. You don't need to. No, it'll dissipate. And in fact, you may want the moisture there depending on the cut of your meat. But I agree with you. If you're you're cooking a vessel, you have to think about whether or not that marinade is going to escape or not escape or, or whatever. So the other issue is the acid. Because in addition to breaking the meat down, like it isn't necessarily a net positive. You kind of have to think about whether or not how long you want your meat and the acid for, right? I love how scientific you're getting, I know. Jamie. I know. Net positive. Okay, so the acid's a real big issue. Yep. So I make a, and I think you and I have talked about this before, yeah. but I make a Greek-type chicken. Mm-hmm. Okay? So it has olive oil, lemon juice, a couple different spices, and garlic. Yep. Okay? And, I mean, I make a similar Middle Eastern-type shawarma, yep. spice mix, uh, marinade, the same, but it, what I'm trying to tell you is that it has lemon and olive oil, mm-hmm. spices, garlic, whatever. If you put the lemon juice on the chicken too far in advance, it'll actually cure the top few millimeters of the chicken and do more damage than good. Well, you're, technically, you're cooking it. Once you right. put your meat in acid, so like if you like ceviche... That's you're leaving fish or whatever in an acid oil combination and you're cooking it through. So if you're putting your meat in a marinade, you're kind of doing the same thing. So you have to think about that. So think about it. So for me, for a couple things, one, I like to get things done in advance. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if I'm making a barbecue for Saturday night dinner, I don't want to start marinating and making the marinade and all of that the day of or even the hour before. So what I do in that case, if I'm doing chicken, like I'm making my green chicken or my shawarma chicken, I will marinate my chicken the day before or even two days before without the lemon juice. So it's still getting that oil-infused, garlicky, paprika, turmeric, oregano flavors. And then when I bring the chicken to room temp for the one hour before I want to grill it, I throw the lemon juice in at that point. You know, if you're intent on getting the lemon flavor and you can always either grate the peel or sort of slice the peel and put it in with your marinade. For sure. And then you get the lemon flavor without the acid and then you can always put the acid in later, right? Or even squeeze a lemon on after it's come off the grill. Yep. Yeah, so if you want to really do this right, you can marinate without acid and put the acid on an hour before while the chicken or meat is coming to room temp or use the lemon juice afterwards. But definitely don't marinate for longer than an hour with lemon juice. So marinades, I'm going to ask a question. Okay. So my dad used to do this thing that used to horrify me. He had this like mustardy honey sauce that he would marinate chicken breasts in. And he would pop it on the grill and then midway when it was cooking, he'd put it back in the same marinade and put it back on the grill. And I was always, you know, horrified that there might be cross contamination because the raw chicken was in there. So I don't do that. Is there a way around that that issue? Yeah, that's awful. But you survived and you seem to be okay. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So if that's the case, what I would do is I would make the marinade. Yep. Remove half of it, use half of it to marinate your chicken or meat. Yeah. And then as the chicken is grilling, 
brush the marinade on with the fresh, uncontaminated marinade. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. The other thing you could do is do the same process. So make the marinade, use half of it to marinate, and then put that second half in a small pot on your stove and really boil it down so it concentrates and then brush that on while it's cooking. Or you could make a dipping sauce with it, right? Yes. So the other thing is I'll take the same flavors that are in the marinade, lose most of the liquid. So let's say it's like a chimichurri-style marinade. Mm -hmm. So it has lots of herbs, garlics, even capers, whatever. And it's quite liquidy for the marinade. But then I leave most of the liquid out and use it as a dipping sauce or a spoon sauce. Yep. Good idea. So that's a great idea. You could do the same thing and the same properties for almost any sauce, like even a pesto. You could buy a store-bought pesto, okay? Yep. Loosen it up by adding more oil and or lemon juice or vinegar. Use it as a marinade and then use the pesto as a bit of a dip or a spoon sauce. Yeah, I'm wary of pesto. Without cheese. Yeah, I was going to say, because if you're grilling, it's got stuff yeah. in it that doesn't necessarily lend itself right. to cooking, yes. right? Like that's Without cheese, yes. Without okay. cheese. There There's loads of them out there without cheese, and they're fabulous. Okay, so we, we've talked about marinating meat. Yeah. Do you marinate your vegetables? So this is a big question. So if you go on the internet, there's loads of marinated vegetables that go in the grill. All that does is add a lot of moisture to the vegetable and make for a very, very soggy end result. Correct. Right? So what I do, and my favorite thing on vegetables really is olive oil and balsamic vinegar. You got it. But if you want, yeah, if you want to embellish it with other things, go for it. I usually put some parsley and maybe some chives and thyme, depending on the time of year, thyme, depending on the time of year. (laughs) What I'll do is marinate the vegetables after So all I put is a very, very thin coating of olive oil on the vegetables. Sometimes even I'll buy a 100% olive oil spray Mm -hmm. just so it doesn't stick to the grill. Spray my vegetable. And then when it comes off the grill, I will throw or drizzle that little bit of marinade on it and while it's on the platter. And then really your grilled vegetables could sit all day. Because the one thing I hate, Jamie, I don't know if you've ever been to anyone's house and they're busy grilling vegetables as they're grilling their hamburgers, yeah, which is ridiculous because it doesn't need to be done like that. You could always throw them back in the oven. You could put them on the platter with the little bit of marinade that you made and then throw them in the oven to keep them warm, but there's no need to be grilling vegetables. The, the, well. grill, the grilled vegetables taste fine al fresco anyways, right? And, and, and sure. to, I agree with you. I usually put some chili flakes into the balsamic oil emulsion and sometimes some rosemary, and that's really great for peppers. Grilled peppers mm-hmm. really work nicely. But if they're coming off the grill hot and then you put them into your, we'll call it marinade, but it's just sort of like that dressing, it's going to soak up the dressing and you'll get all the flavor as if you had marinated before. Nobody will know that you didn't marinate and it's actually easier to cook the vegetables if you don't marinate them. That's my view. For sure, because it's less water. But don't forget, especially for eggplant, you need to salt it first to remove that excess water or sponginess that the eggplant has. So again, you don't want to add that to the vegetable before you put it on. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. What do you want to talk about next month? We're going to talk about dry rubs. Fantastic. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Joel Thuna, Alexandra Leon, Melissa Cameron, and Carolyn Tanner-Cohen. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at The Tonic Talk Show on Instagram or Facebook. For great articles written by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. 
The May-June issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to every home subscriber in Toronto west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Next week on the show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.